0: Think that trauma elevates the level of care in any healthcare system.
1: Hello, and welcome to this episode of Trauma Talk. Today, my guest is Dr. Julie Long, a pediatric surgeon, and our topic will be pediatric trauma resuscitation. Dr. Long, thank you for being on the show, and would you please introduce yourself?
0: To be here, my name is Dr. Julie Long, I'm a pediatric surgeon. I've been a pediatric surgeon for more than 30 years. When I started my career at Children's. Hospital of Michigan in Detroit, we went through our first ACS verification. And at that point, I was the director and a brand new person. So I've been involved with trauma, you know, basically all my career and really think that trauma elevates the level of care in any healthcare system. So I think it's vital for the trauma patients, but also for the whole healthcare system.
1: Well, Dr. Long, thanks for being on the show. So our first question is what's the preferred solution for pediatric resuscitation? normal saline, LR, or a dextrose combination? Yes.
0: I think there's general consensus that LR is better. Uh, We want to avoid dextrose containing solutions. Almost all trauma patients have the stress response and they come in hyperglycemic anyway. The only exception to that might be a neonate that's involved in a trauma. And that's fortunately extremely rare. So LR is better because there's less problems with acidemia, and there's been some links with a hypercoagulable state with saline. I mean, obviously, if you only have saline, you give it, but isotonic fluid, LR being the fluid of choice.
1: So Dr. Long, with there being national blood shortages, are there any considerations to initially doing a fluid bolus or going straight to blood?
0: So let's go out into the field. If you're out in the field, Uh, with a very short transport and you're coming right in you can give you can just give your lr and let the rest happen at the hospital if you're out in the field and you've got a long transport and you've got a mess on your hands if you've got both blood if you're lucky enough to have blood available and if you're lucky enough to have whole blood available you're you're really having a good day so if you've got that then i probably would start with Blood it, it, when it's clearly shock and hang saline, but the reality is most of the time you don't have all of those options, and if you don't have blood, then I would start with LR, and call for blood, get it any way you can, um, you know, in a, in a true shock situation where you you know that you're dealing with hemorrhagic shock.
1: Are there any considerations to take into account when deciding between whole blood or other component therapies?
0: Um, One of the issues with blood transfusions is, is whole blood versus component therapy. And in the beginning of the 20th century, the military used whole blood and used it successfully. Then for World War II... They started thinking blood is a precious resource. We're going to break it up into components. We're going to save our precious resources and be smarter about blood. The problem with component therapy is when you break it up into components, the blood doesn't, the shelf life of each component may be longer, but the actual efficacy of the unit, the packed cells, is not as long. Uh, the, the blood products break down quicker. It has less oxygen compared. Uh, carrying capacity and in order to give in a massive you know, real true hemorrhagic shock to give your pex cells your ffp and your cryo you have to give more volume so you get into the volume overload problem and so now we're 100 years later we're back to recognizing the ideal blood product in hemorrhagic shock is fresh whole blood That's the ideal product, and that's what the military is doing now. What we're doing in the civilian world, if we're lucky, is giving whole blood off the shelf, which is the second best. The third best is Paxel's FFP and cryo in a one-to-one ratio. I want to tell you a story from a recent trauma conference I went to, and so much of what we've learned about how to manage trauma patients we've learned from the military. And they've learned their lessons the hard way, but they're doing really amazing things. And, you know, we used to talk about the golden hour, and now they're talking about the golden 30 minutes. And, you know, they've got their transport from the field to the very first hospital, which is like a tent, and then the, there's like five levels. And if you make it to the level three hospital, you're, you're gonna survive. It's the deaths occur from the field to the first hospital. And what the military is doing now is they are blood typing all their deployed soldiers and they're checking them for hepatitis, AIDS, and everything. And then before they go out to the field, they're rechecked again. So everybody knows who's O-negative. All the soldiers carry their IV in a bag. So if somebody's down, the O-negatives put an IV themselves, fill up a bag of blood, and give it to their buddy. And they're given blood on the field. Now, you know, you think that's wonderful and outrageous. I I think we need to re rethink care in this country to utilize the lessons from the military. That can be done. It's being done in Norway. You know, huge transport problems, bad weather. You get injured out in the field in Norway. You're not going to be in a trauma center. They do that in their, not in their military, but in their trauma care. You know, you look at what's happening in this country with massive casualties and everything to know who your own negative people are in the community and to have fire rescue. Know that this person lives here. They've been typed. We know their own negative. In the event of a mass casualty, to be able to call them up is, could be life-saving. And I think you know that's going to take a long time coming, but if we don't think about that, it's never going to, it's never going to happen. And it is being done. There are models for it now, and it's saving lives. Think about Uvalde. I mean, they did call people in, and you know, the, tr- there's tremendous community support, but they don't know who's O negative. Everybody shows up. You got people that want to give that aren't going to be helpful. You need to know who your O negative donors are and call them in first in a, in a massive casualty.
1: So, Dr. Long, do you have any recommendations for these facilities that treat trauma patients that are going through blood shortages?
0: What I recommend is they work with their blood bank and come up with a solution where they can get blood. Because if they're in that situation, to get a salvageable patient with any hope of a good outcome, and it's that bad, they need to get blood. Yeah. So I work,
1: I work with maybe your neighboring facilities.
0: Neighboring facilities. Highway your 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 EMS, your firefighters, what they do is save lives. There's got to be a way that we can get blood to people that need it in this country. You know, and, and to say, to try to do anything other than that when that's what's needed is you're putting your energy in the wrong direction,
1: so. So sit down, have meetings before it happens. You know, we need
0: to identify who our blood donors are in any community and and work with it.
1: TXA and pediatric patient. What's the youngest age you can give TXA to?
0: It's recommended as part of uh, the... the massive transfusion protocol for pediatric patients. So absolutely, yes. The problem in peds in general is when you get to the under one, there's no studies, there's no data, nobody knows for sure. Fortunately, the number of children that age that need it are low. In a situation where there was nothing else available, I would use it in any age pediatric patient that was clearly a massive transfusion situation needs to be given in the first 3 hours you give your bolus and then you give your drip yes i think it is beneficial there are some potential problems but i think the risk benefit analysis is everybody comes down on the side of give txa
1: so you're comfortable with one year or older yes is there a preferred map goal for the pediatric patient
0: <laughs> okay this is this is really kind of the crux of why pediatric resuscitation is difficult because even pediatricians don't know the normal vital signs for kids because they're so variable, right? I mean, we all pretty much know what a normal vital sign should be in an adult and we know when they're not normal. But in kids, if you've got a neonate, a heart rate of 180 and a blood pressure of 40 could be normal. So first of all, I think all, all the rigs and ERs need to have it posted in their ER because none of us remember what the range is and what's normal. That's that's number one. And the ranges are great. And so you you don't have a baseline for that individual. And what else we know about kids is they maintain their systolic blood pressure for much longer than adults. So tachycardia is the first measurable sign. Probably cool extremities is the one of the most important. And then you've got to decide whether this kid with tachycardia is tachycardic because he's terribly afraid or and mad or is he in shock. So that's when you feel, grab their extremities. And then you, of course, you live, this is Kansas where it's cold. And so that's, so it's a combination of cool extremities and tachycardia is going to help you recognize shock. And then Noticing, but the you know basically above a year of age, your systolic pressure should be around 70. For every year above that, you add like two. So if you're 12, it should be 90. But there's a, there's a big range, and so it's, it makes it really hard. By the time you're thinking, is this a low blood pressure? It probably is, and you're probably patient's probably in shock.
1: Out of all the pediatric vital signs, are there any that give people false comfort?
0: The range is so great for heart rate, though, that it it could, it would be easy to falsely reassure yourself that in this two-year-old, a heart rate of 160 is okay. I mean, it's, I would, you know, for the people in the field, I would choose the number to get worried about for the low rate on the heart rate. And once it's, once it's hit that low range, you know, if your range for normal is 100 to 180, that's a huge range. So once you're seeing the low end of the range, get, get concerned.
1: Are there TBI map goals for pediatric patients?
0: Well, yes and no. I mean, in the field, you're not going to be getting maps. You're not going to be using. A map is really used in resuscitation as in in the head-injured patient. And by then, they're in the ICU, and you've got an intracranial bolt in. So the goal is to, uh, you know, your cerebral perfusion pressure is going to be your mean arterial pressure minus the ICP, right? So if you've got, you know, in the ICU, they're going to try, if you've got an elevated ICP, they're going to try to up the mean arterial pressure to increase cerebral perfusion. And that works for to, you know, it works to a point, you know. So it's basically that's that's in the basically ICU care. I think the other the other thing is in terms of resuscitation in the field, you want to look at you don't you want to resuscitate to a normal pressure but not to, an elevated blood pressure. If you've got uncontrolled hemorrhage and you get to elevated blood pressures, there's certainly laboratory data that says that increases bleeding. So and, and in the head injury patient, you definitely want to get to a, a, a normal blood pressure. That may be the one time when you've got an isolated head where if you resuscitate to a little bit above normal that's probably okay but in the, in the hemorrhagic shock model which is you want to go to a normal pressure and not overshoot it where you might aggravate bleeding and the longer your transport time is probably the more important that is.
1: We've had providers ask about permissive hypotension what are your thoughts on it?
0: That's come in and out of favor and people are still talking about it and it's, it's kind of good to look across the pond and see what people are doing in Europe. They they are, some places are still in favor of that. I think that in the animal models, at least, it's is your hemorrhage controlled or uncontrolled? I mean, now we're really good at controlling extremity hemorrhage. Everybody knows to put a tourniquet on it. Do you have uncontrolled truncal bleeding? And if you do, yeah, you don't want to have hypertension. That's going to make it worse. I mean, even... It's not trauma, but ruptured aortas, aortic aneurysms. They don't get their pay- They want to lower blood pressure. So, yes, I think there is a role in, in those settings. But in, in the pediatric world, so often we've got multi-organ system injury with head injuries. And I don't think you ever want to do permissive hypotension in, a, in the setting of a head injury.
1: When should a provider consider vasopressors?
0: In the trauma center, that's usually the ICU. We rarely start pressors in the trauma bay. It's usually blood. In the rural facilities, they've got to really be, it's, I would think, in the situation of a traumatic brain injury, an isolated head injury, or or the other, the other one is spinal shock, which we haven't talked about at all yet. But that's the one indication where everybody agrees you're going to, need pressors to support that person. But I would say spinal shock, head injuries.
1: We know ACS always says hemorrhagic shock till proven otherwise. Besides the mechanism, what else would make you suspect neurogenic?
0: Well, your, your physical exam. The mechanism of injury, of course, you know, diving injuries, things like that, you know, crazy type falls. In the field, I mean, you, you may have an unresponsive patient that, we, you, that you can't determine whether, they, but rectal tone, can help no reflexes no plantar reflexes that can help and actually no signs of trauma you know going to be high neck you got somebody in shock you don't see any bruising there's no you know what's going on here then you your mind has to go to
1: that Uh, on the head injury part hypertonic solution versus mannitol for head injuries do you have a preference or what are your thoughts
0: we typically recommend hypertonic saline as a first adjunct and you know how it should be used usually a three to five cc bolus and then a slow infusion. Um, I think for significant head injuries, but not so serious, maybe that initial bolus may be all that's necessary. In the very severe head injury patients, it's so easy to overshoot. But again, that's an ICU problem. I think that would, hypertonic saline in the field would be preferable to mannitol. In a case where it's an absolute disaster, I think everything gets tried. But in the PEDS, the PEDS literature supports hypertonic over mannitol as a first.
1: Dr. Long, is there any other advice you'd offer our healthcare workers when dealing with a pediatric resuscitation?
0: One thing we haven't talked about, you haven't asked, is about lines. I mean, it's a big issue in pediatrics. And the the smaller and sicker the patient, the more difficult it is to get lines in. I think it's everybody... Most people know an I.O. is good, an I.O. is great, an I.O. is life-saving. Early in my career, I remember the first article that they took people in rural North Carolina, put them on the back of their rigs, they never put them in, and they said, after two attempts for an IV, put this in, and they had a greater than 90% success rate and being able to establish an IO and do the resuscitation. So what that said to me right on is this is our answer. We're not talking about cut-downs, multiple attempts, calling different people. Ha- put your IO in, and, and you can give blood, you can give crystalloid, you can give drugs through it, and so it's there. that's also life-saving. Dis- uh, proximal tibia, if you don't have a femur fracture, distal femur, You can go to the humoral head. Small children in shock need IOs.
1: Dr. Long, thanks for being on the show. I hope to have you come back on the show when you have time. If you have any questions for Dr. Long or episode requests from myself, you can always reach me at my email address, aaron.sutton at wesleymc.com. That's aaron.sutton at wesleymc.com. And you can also hear all our past episodes at wesleytraumatalk.podbean.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.